Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's ASF's Weekly Science Podcast. Uh, this week, I am incredibly honored to have the author of a new paper called A Data-Driven Approach in an Unbiased Sample Reveals Equivalent Sex Ratio of Autism Spectrum Disorder Associated Impairment in Early Childhood. And if that's a mouthful, don't worry. The first author author, Dr. Casey Burroughs, is here to answer questions um, and to have a discussion about this paper. You can also read about this paper on Spectrum News. They're coming out on Thursday with a specific article about it because it does take a different look at a, a question that has been long established in the autism literature. And that question is, how many females are diagnosed with autism compared to males. And this is one of the most long-standing established findings in autism, whether that goes from five to one to three to one, the CDC has it at four to one. There's many different reasons behind this, both biological and sociological. One of the ways to kind of rethink this problem is to maybe group people with autism in different ways. And so Dr. Casey Burroughs is here. Uh, Dr. Burroughs, why don't you go ahead and just introduce yourself? I'd be happy to. Um, so I'm Dr. Casey Burroughs, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Minnesota. Thank you. So um, you're part of a study called the Infant Brain Imaging Study, and this study is looking longitudinally, which is really important, at infants who have an older sibling with autism. So they have a one in five chance of a diagnosis. And you looked at them from anywhere between six months to five years of age. So instead of capturing behaviors at one point in time, you're looking at multiple times across development. So you have a, an interesting opportunity to look at the question of the male-female bias and diagnosis in a different way. So the first question is, why would you study the male-female bias in autism diagnosis? Um, yeah, and you're right that this is um, the male, the four to one male to female uh, sex ratio in autism diagnosis is one of the most common and long established findings in autism research. And um, and that four to one number reflects only children who make it through the referral and diagnostic pipeline, typically. Um, so those children um are referred for evaluation, they meet full ASD diagnostic criteria and receive an ASD diagnosis. Um, and we think that there might be inherent sex biases at various steps in that process that are important to better understand and that our data-driven results can shed light on. Um, and we also know that that diagnostic boundary is fuzzier or maybe not quite as uh, clear of a distinction as many researchers initially thought. So studying differences um, by sex um, in just diagnostic outcomes misses a lot of the variability that occurs along that diagnostic continuum. So that's what we were interested in for this study. So you're tapping into a very unique opportunity in terms of the individuals that you studied. What was the advantage of using younger siblings of those with a diagnosis to address this question? Um, yeah, there are a couple of um, advantages to using um, infant siblings um, of autistic children. So the first is that, as you mentioned, they're at increased likelihood of developing ASD. 
Um, but they also show a lot of variability in outcomes. So some do go on to receive an autism diagnosis. Some are typically developing, um, while others show some subclinical features. So not quite diagnosable, um, but not totally typically developing either. Um, and they also might have other associated difficulties. So cognitive impairments, learning difficulties, anxiety um, at later ages. Um, and the other huge benefit, particularly for this study, um, of studying infant siblings is that it lets us, it gives us a window into the, the progression of autism symptoms before the diagnosis. Um, and that can very rarely be done if we only look at children after they receive a diagnosis. So um, studying infant siblings who we can recruit um, really at birth uh, help us better understand the tra trajectory of autism symptoms, um, which is what we did on our paper. So why is that important to look at multiple time points? Why study longitudinally? So um, for the IBIS study, we had visits at 6, 12, 24, and 36 plus months. Um, and, um, and typically, uh, studies looking at uh, diagnostic outcomes use a singular time point um, where they made that diagnostic assessment. Um, so typically at 24 or 36 months. Um, however, here we really flipped the script on this traditional approach and let the data from multiple time points, so across that full time span, inform um, the groupings that we identified. Um, so this let us look at trajectories of symptom variation over time, rather than just looking at a single time point and looking at what might predict those outcomes, but really saying, okay, can a data-driven approach um, tell us something that's a little bit more than just that diagnostic binary? That's a good point. So having all of these siblings at all these different time points could possibly reduce the number of individuals in your study. Um, it didn't seem to, you had a robust group. Can you describe how many siblings there were how, and how many are were in the different group? Yeah, um, so for our high likelihood siblings, so those are the infant siblings of autistic children, we had 377 children. Um, and because they had multiple time points, we had um, about four times that, 1,254 observations from those kids. Um, and then we also did have a comparison group. So we call them the lower likelihood uh, comparison group or sibling group. Um, and uh, so those are children who did not have an older uh, sibling with autism. They just had an, a typically developing older sibling. And uh, in that group, we had 168 children um, and 527 observations. And then, and so um, in the low likelihood group, um, we excluded any children who went on to uh, receive an autism diagnosis just to keep those groups pretty um, cleanly differentiated. Um, and then within the high likelihood group, um, we did have uh, 20 females and 66 males. Um, so 88 children who went on to receive a diagnosis of autism. Um, and so that is um, about 20% of our sample, which is uh, pretty comparable to that one in five number. 
So, but instead of looking, I want to make sure that we lead into this because this is the exciting part of the study. Instead of looking at an autism diagnosis per se, according to the criteria in the DSM, you grouped these um, infants and toddlers, I guess, by the time they became five, Mm -hmm. uh, you grouped them in a different way. Can you describe how you went about grouping them and what that looked like? Yeah. Um, and, and I think the methodological innovation here, um, it's, it's a bit dense when you're actually reading the paper, but if we can break it down, it's actually pretty straightforward. So I'll try and do that here. Um, so overall, our goal was to identify subgroups within the data that might be, um, that are based on change in our trajectories of social communication and restricted and repetitive behaviors over time. So first we had to find a way that we could assess those, um, those domains, social communication, restricted and repetitive behaviors or RBs comparably over time. So we know that we're comparing apples to apples across visits. And as of right now, there's not a single measure um, that uses um, uh, social interactions uh, that can be used for that full time point from six to 60 months. But we do have two different measures. Um, one um, is the ADOS, kind of the gold standard um, semi-structured social interaction that's used to diagnose autism um, for uh, that we administered at our 24 and 36 um, plus time point. And then there's also a developmentally appropriate semi-structured social interaction um, called the AOC or the Autism Observation Scale for Infants um, that is really similar in terms of how it's administered. The codes are a little bit different. um, And obviously what the kids can do at six months versus 36 months is pretty different. Um, But we wondered if we could get information on some of the codes that might be similar across those two measures um, to get an index of social communication and RRBs that we could compare over time. Kind of the takeaway point was our groups that were based on social communication, um, we are identifying about 30% of our population that were showing um, elevated social communication concerns that persisted over time. Um, And that's in comparison to the kids who were showing um, very low concerns and they actually decreased in the level of social communication concern over time. So that high social communication concern or HSSC group um, was about 30% of our sample. And really importantly here, it was 30% of the males and 30% of the females. So that leaves us with with closer to a one-to-one sex ratio when we look at trajectories of concerns and we look at um, this data, use this data-driven approach. So instead of going a priori with this person will not have a diagnosis, this person has some other sort of diagnosis, and then this person has an autism diagnosis, you kind of left the data tell you what the different groups are. And you ended up with high levels of social communication concern and high levels of restrictive and repetitive behavior, and then low levels. And so the data kind of grouped themselves that way. And then when you did it that way, there really was no, no difference in males versus females. 
Exactly. The data-driven model didn't know anything about the child's diagnostic outcome or their sex. So it's really just looking at scores. And then we later went back and looked at kind of within um, our high social communication concern group, like what percentage of those kids were um, meeting diagnostic criteria. And there was a pretty good overlap. Um, it was a stronger overlap in the boys, kind of understandably, because um, they show higher rates of um, kind of autism diagnoses in our sample even. Um, and for the girls, there were more girls who had not been previously identified as having an autism spectrum disorder. But when we looked at the clinical notes, there, there were some concerns that clinicians were raising at the diagnostic outpoint or outcome time points. And they said that they wanted to continue monitoring those girls. Um, and then the caveat I will give is that within our high social communication concern group, we did see a sex effect. So even within kids who are showing elevations in social communication concerns, the girls are not quite as elevated as the boys. So I think that speaks to the fact that um, that might be one of the reasons why some of these girls are getting missed if we look at just a single time point is that they're, they might not be meeting full diagnostic criteria, but over time, they're not completely typical either. And so they might benefit from some intervention. So these findings are, are very consistent with other, other literature in this area, which shows that clinicians are less kind of confident about their mm -hmm. evaluations in girls when the girls are younger, when the girls get older, and presumably when social pressures exceed what that girl is, is capable of, of facing, that maybe that's when symptoms start to emerge. Um, and then also just the fact that the, the sex differences or the sex bias is lesser in, um, in infants. Um, so I think it's important to make that distinction or at least to point that out um, but really what this study kind of adds is looking specifically, instead of looking at a DSM-5 criteria for autism, looking at a different kind of way of, of grouping individuals. So what do you think? Does it matter more about the diagnosis or does it matter more about the symptomatology? And how do we reconcile that? Because we do operate right now under a paradigm where there's a certain number of, of features that needs to get listed in social communication and restrictive and repetitive behaviors. And so how do you reconcile those two things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it really is getting at this central question of what is autism. Um, and we, you know, we have these DSM definitions, um, we have our, our diagnostic measures, clinical judgment, and all of those, I think, have some sort of potential underlying bias um, or some subjectivity to them that might be particularly pronounced on the basis of sex. You know, we've known for a long time that autism is not a singular kind of homogenous presentation. There's so much variability within um, the diagnostic, you know, kids who are getting the diagnoses even, not even these kids who are kind of along that boundary. Um, but what we think is that if we can 
parse some of that variability that exists along the diagnostic continuum, it might help us identify um, more clear markers to underlying neurobiology um, because we have we can kind of group onto more homogenous groups and that even within autism, there might be specific neurobiological markers for, for different profiles of symptom impairment. Um, and so here we're kind of taking a cue from um, for, former NIMH director, uh, Stephen Hyman, um, who really was espousing uh, epistemic humility. So trying to, you know, take a step back, not just say we're the clinicians we get to decide, but really looking at the data and see what the data uh, can tell us about um, sex-based measurement bias and whether there might be bias along kind of that referral process as well. So what we think is that if our if our groupings uh, have a more clear link to underlying biology, that might help determine kind of how we define autism and or whether we could benefit from using these kind of profiles of symptoms and symptoms over time to identify kind of personalized interventions for each of these different groups. So what does this say about the current methodology, you know, which is utilizing what's known as the DSM-5? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we we do want to be really clear that we're not trying to say that our clinicians did did a bad job of diagnosing or that we we think that these girls should have been diagnosed with autism. Um, we think that there this is telling us that there might be complexity in early development than um, the current DSM really is designed to handle. So the DSM is supposed to, is designed to be able to diagnose ASD across the full developmental time span, um, across different intellectual abilities. So there's, and it's supposed to kind of differentiate ASD from other conditions. So we think that helps in terms of kind of classifying children to help make them eligible for different interventions, but it doesn't necessarily map onto underlying biology. And I think there's a lot of evidence showing that rather than kind of lumping and splitting these different diagnoses, there's a lot more overlap, for example, between um, ASD and ADHD or ASD and anxiety, both in terms of the co-occurrence of the condition and some of the genetic underpinnings of these different conditions. Um, and so if we can use some of these data-driven approaches, um, we might be able to both kind of identify those um, biological mechanisms, um, and then also um, identify some of these early profiles. And it also can help us um, identify interventions that might be most appropriate. So um, for girls or for children who are showing less uh, severe kind of early social impairments, they might need different types of support. So they might need uh, support keeping interactions going rather than um, initiating the interaction to start off with. And this might possibly mean, and I'm saying this, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, I'm saying this, this might possibly mean that the way we think about autism needs to be changed, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe individuals who have a current diagnosis have something else, right? Mm -hmm. That requires a completely different approach um, to both identification and supports. And so you know, this idea that it's an all, it's a one or the other thing may be kind of antiquated. So that's mm -hmm. my, that I don't want to put words in your mouth. That's 
I'll I'll take the I'll I'll take the feedback from that comment uh, on my own. Well, um, but I think we're oh, kind ahead. of you know we are we are kind of shifting how we're thinking about autism and and that um, yeah, just like you said, it's it's not this diagnostic binary. And and we know that. We know that there are children who need different types of support and different levels of support, support in different domains that aren't necessarily specific to autism symptoms. Um, And I think that is some of the important pieces we want to follow up on is kind of where do these kids end up? And also, do we need to look at something other than autism symptoms in terms of making these kind of subgrouping analyses? So here we just looked at social communication and RRBs, but we're definitely interested in looking at other domains as well. Well, I think you had said something like, we know that there's a spectrum. I think that there are a lot of people that still consider autism a binary thing. And that probably needs to change. And and some individuals, you know, would be considered on the autism spectrum. You know, if we're going to keep it in autism, no autism, then some people would 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 switch based on their their feature profiles and the needs are completely different. And I don't know if actually everyone recognizes that. So I'm glad that that that's been said. Mm-hmm. So um, I want to ask one more question, and then I want you to you know provide your takeaways from this paper. My last question is, you know, I did mention that well-known that kind of clinician identification of different features kind of changes over time, whereas some people are, are some clinicians are less confident when kids are younger and more confident as they get older. So are you going to, what, what's going to happen? You've tracked them to 60 months. Are you following them further? And is this something that maybe needs to be redone in certain age groups? Yeah, so we um, are currently kind of wrapping up our data collection with these children um, when they are at school age, so age 7 to 12 years. Um, And that was actually kind of where some of these ideas started, is we started seeing these kids come in for their school age visits who had never gotten an autism diagnosis before, and they were meeting criteria. So just like you were saying, kind of as those social demands increased, they were failing to kind of meet the developmental kind of ex- social expectations and were meeting full criteria for an autism spectrum disorder later on. And more of those girls were, or more of those kids were girls or were female. Um, and so that was really what inspired a lot of this uh, work to look at trajectories and data-driven approaches because um, we thought maybe, you know, we didn't think our clinicians had missed concerns, but we wondered had the concerns not been as present. And I think what this research is showing is that they might be present. They're just not full-blown diagnostic um, level by the time kind of in early childhood and that there might be kids who are showing important change in symptom presentation over time. So our current next steps is really just to kind of validate these early subgroups by looking at their functional outcomes at the school age visit. Um, So we're looking at um, autism symptoms, adaptive behavior, and then co-occurring areas as well. Um, And we've really just started on those analyses, so I won't say too much, um, but keep your eyes open for that paper because I think it'll be have some really exciting results. It is really exciting, especially when a study follows, this is not easy for listeners, follows 
a group of people across time. And there aren't that many studies even around the world that are able to do this. As you can imagine, people move, people lose interest, family situations change. And so to get a group of, of, of kids or even adolescents or adults that have been followed for this long period of time is really very remarkable. So thank you for all the work that you've done on this. And I wanna leave it to you to kind of provide any additional kind of things, things that you want people to know about and um, some of the things that you think are most important for families to understand when they, they, after they've listened to this podcast. And really, we wouldn't be able to do any of this without the dedication of our families. And we so appreciate all of the time that they contribute um, and the information that we're gathering from them. Um, and we do currently have a replication sample that we're conducting. So we're following a new group of infants uh, who have an older sibling with autism. So if any listeners out there have uh, have or know of families who have a child with autism and a new baby, um, they can go to our website, which is ibis, ibis-network.org. I will double check that. Um, and um, so they can help contribute to the research. Um, and really, I think that um, when I think about the, the novelties of this study and some of the takeaways is that we, and this is going to be um, a little bit controversial perhaps, but I don't think we can keep studying only children who have been diagnosed with autism um, because there are so many potential biases and there's so much more information that is present compared to if you just look at autism versus typical development. And I think our prospectively identified sample of children who are uh, likely to show variability in autism symptoms and other symptoms as well um, is less biased with, res re with respect to recruitment um, and, and finding other ways that we can look at early trajectories of symptoms, um, not just in infant siblings, is going to be a really important next step. Um, I also think that there's a lot of work still to be done in terms of understanding our measures and how they're functioning similarly or differently by sex um, and by other features as well. So we have some other projects underway um, where we'll be probing that um, more closely. And then I also think just the importance of both studying and then clinically evaluating longitudinal change is really important and can often give us more information than just looking at a single time point. Um, and then just to wrap up, I, I wouldn't be here without our incredible team. Uh, we have uh, kind of the first five authors on this project have all contributed so much. We've um, been meeting regularly for the last two years and, and really all of the authors on the paper have, have contributed ideas and, and I, I wouldn't be here without all of them. So I want to thank them as well. And thank you. And so this is definitely um, food for thought, I guess is the term. And you got the website absolutely correct. It's ibis-network, either .org or .com will redirect to the, to the right place. So I checked that while you were talking. Thank I want to thank you, Dr. Burroughs, for a great conversation. And um, again, if you want to read more about this and maybe even the thoughts from other researchers, Spectrum News is coming out on Thursday this coming Thursday uh, with, uh, with their own story about this. So I hope you check that out as well. So thank you so much.
And uh, we look forward to talking to you soon and learning more about what IBIS is doing. Thanks for having me. I got no rules, I count them.